title of our lesson this morning is Ascending and Descending. From our passage here, we're referring to Christ coming from heaven to earth, and that's the topic that we want to develop. Now, last Sunday, we answered the question, how do we maintain unity in the church? And the short answer was the Lordship of Christ. And we maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace by exercising our gifts and doing all the one another things that we are taught in Scripture. Last Sunday, we looked at Christ giving grace. He gives grace according to the measure of His gift. If you have a gift that's difficult to perform, God will give you grace to help you with that. Then God gives the gifts, and we looked at some of them, the apostles and the prophets and so forth. And then today, we come to Christ filling all things. What does that mean? Christ now fulfills all things. We'll take a look and see. Let's look at our passage in Ephesians and beginning in verse 8. Therefore, he says, if you have a modern translation, it probably says it says. It's talking about God's word in the Old Testament. God himself speaking through his word. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. He's quoting Psalm 68 that we read. Now this, he ascended, what does it mean, but that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. If your Bible has a parenthesis uh, around verses 9 and 10, That simply refers to the fact that Paul is going to be explaining this psalm, Psalm 68, from the Old Testament. How can you have unity in the church? It is purchased by Christ. There are things that we have to do, but Christ paves the way and gives us the grace to do it. How did he do it? How did Christ get to be the head of the church and the giver and dispenser of all the gifts? Think of that all throughout the church age. Gifts to every believer so that they might exercise those gifts for the good of the church as a whole. He earned the right to govern the church as its head. He's the Messiah. He's the promised one. He's the anointed one. He earned this right by coming to earth and accomplishing an amazing mission. The idea is not new with Paul. He is drawing from the Old Testament, Psalm 68. So Paul is going to give an exposition of Psalm 68, 18 in Ephesians there, chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. Turn with me back to Psalm 68 in the Old Testament. And I'll pull some verses. They'll be here on the screen for you. But it'd be good to read that entire psalm because it's a psalm of deliverance where God is delivering his people, Israel. Psalm 68, verse 4, Sing to God, sing praises to his name. Lift up a song for him who rides through the deserts, whose name is the Lord, and exult before him. Now, if you have the King James Version, it probably says, whose name is Yah, J-A-H. That's an abbreviation for Yahweh. That is the name of God. It's easy to see to whom the psalmist is referring here when he says, sing to God. His name is Yahweh. 
Then in verses 24 through 26 from Psalm 68, we'll see a victory parade, a procession of sorts. David is bringing the ark from the home of Obed-Edom into Jerusalem. He has built a large tent there known as the sanctuary on Mount Zion, and that's where the ark is going to be placed until the real sanctuary is built by Solomon many years later, and that would be on Mount Moriah, the Temple Mount, a nearby hill in Jerusalem. So David and his captains of thousands and all of the elders are carrying forth in this procession a great time of joy and thanksgiving, bringing the ark back to Jerusalem. Or to Jerusalem, First Chronicles 15 and 16 give the whole story of the procession, if you'd like to read that. Look now in Psalm 68, verse 24. They have seen thy procession, O God, the procession of my God, my King, into the sanctuary. Who is the one leading this procession? Verse 17. The chariots of God are myriads, thousands upon thousands. The Lord is among them as at Sinai in holiness. Thou hast ascended on high. Thou hast led captive thy captives. Thou hast received gifts among men, even among the rebellious also, that the Lord may dwell there. Can you see this? Jehovah is the one that is leading the procession in Psalm 68. But Paul is pulling that out to apply in the New Testament that Jesus is the one leading the procession. There's only one conclusion to which we could really arrive, and that is that Jesus is Jehovah. Who is this one in the Old Testament? In Psalm 18, we see, Psalm 68, verse 18, we see the Lord is the one who has ascended on high. How can the Lord God Almighty ascend? Now, think about that uh, with me. He's the self-existent one. He is the Ancient of Days. He is El Gabor, the mighty God. God is immutable. He never changes. He's always the same. His omnipresence fills everything in heaven and on earth. He can't ascend to anywhere because he's already there. God is already everywhere. There's only one way that he could ascend, and that is if he first descended, like the text says. And when he descended, that was the incarnation of Christ planned before the foundation of the earth, brought to fruition in Bethlehem's manger. Christ was born, the Son descended from heaven, and came down to earth when the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Psalm 68 has to be a reference to Christ. That's the only way it could make any sense, because God is everywhere. He doesn't ascend, He doesn't descend, but the second person of the Trinity... Christ gave up his home in heaven, gave up his position above the law, came down here to the earth to live as we do with all of the challenges of human nature and all of the things connected with that, tempted in every way just as we are and yet without sin. That right there ought to be an encouragement to us that our captain went through everything we go through and much more and yet 
he was sinless, and for that reason he could pay the price for our sin. Christ was God in heaven, the second person of the Trinity. He descended to earth to become the God-man, the mediator, the redeemer. Forty days after his resurrection, he ascended back to heaven and he's seated now at the right hand of the Father. He has all authority, he said, in heaven and on earth. That ought to be a great encouragement to us as well. Nothing can happen apart from Christ's authority and from his watchful care over us. So he's there now at the right hand of the Father. He is giving gifts to the church. He wants his church to overcome, that we would be the victors. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. And he gives these gifts so that we may encourage other believers, and particularly other believers in the local body. We want to encourage people in Mexico and Cambodia and Ireland and all over the world, but right now and right here, We want to practice that by encouraging one another, by the exercise of our gifts. Now, he gives these gifts to promote unity and love. Many other things, but those would be at the top of the list. This is time when we need to focus on unity and love, the gifts of God's Spirit. Now, he also brought back some other gifts when he ascended into heaven. He gives us gifts of forgiveness. He gives us eternal life. He gives us the hope of an inheritance that never fades or spoils. He has a lot of things for us. But in the passage, we were talking about spiritual gifts. Now, the victor receives the spoils in the battle to equip the church, the victor Christ. You've heard the story of the Roman generals who would win a great victory, and they would have some of the captives that they took in the battle chained to their chariot, and they would be in a big parade going through the streets of Rome, and there would be the captives, and here would be the general who would be dispensing gifts, spoils of war, to his men and to the populace at large as well. This is kind of the picture that we have here of this procession of Christ taking some captives And he's going back to heaven. Now the question would be, who or what are those captives? And there are a lot of different ideas as to what that should be. I would suggest to you that Christ didn't go back to heaven empty-handed. His mediatorial work on earth accomplished the victory over the devil, who is the perpetrator of all sin which is just not being or doing what God requires. And sometimes our natural inclinations can get us into that without even any help from the devil. And then the devil's weapon, death. Death, that awful specter that lies before everyone. No one has escaped from death. Well, one guy was translated into into heaven. Elijah rode a flaming chariot. But everyone else faces death. Lazarus was raised from the dead, but then he died again. So that's the thing that the devil has held over us. But Christ came 
to set us free. He immobilized the power of the devil and his weapons of sin and fear of death against us. Let's look at that in Scripture. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 14. Since then the children, that's us, share in the flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might deliver those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all his life. So because of his victory at the cross, now every spiritual blessing in Christ is available to every Christian. And the power of the Holy Spirit, resurrection power, is also available for us not only to develop the fruit of the Spirit in our lives, but to develop those gifts that God gave for the sake of the body. 2 Corinthians 2.14, But thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ, and through us spreads everywhere the fragrance of the knowledge of Him. That's our job, spread the fragrance of the knowledge of Christ. And we can do that as Christ leads us in this procession. So the captivity, I think, that Christ led captive when he ascended back to heaven is the captivity of sin and the fear of death, which the devil held over mankind until Christ came and until he died on the cross. Isaiah 61, Isaiah predicts that in a number of places, but we see he has sent me, the Messiah, to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Well, they're bound by sin and by death and the prospect of condemnation after death. Christ sets us free from that. Now, we've heard that so many times in so many ways that it's just not that big a deal, but it really is a big deal. And if you had been Simeon waiting for God's Messiah... If you had been old Anna there in the temple serving faithfully, hoping to see the Messiah, that would have been really a big deal, especially when you realize the implications that he came to set us free, free from fear, free from frustration, free from a lot of things that we really have to fight against the devil to keep from falling into. So we come to a problematic phrase now in Ephesians 4, 9. Verse 9. Now this, he ascended. What does it mean but that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth? Descended into the lower parts of the earth. What in the world are the lower parts of the earth? Or what is that phrase? That single phrase has played a prominent part in church history and in the creeds of the church. What does it mean? If we would worship God in spirit and in truth, I believe we need to know the truth about what we're referring to when we recite the creed that is based upon this phrase. Well, we want to take a look and see uh, what that means. Here's our first explanation. Some people would say it's simply a reference to Christ's birth from the Virgin Mary. He was born on earth from the Virgin's womb. 
proponents of that concept would point to Psalm 139. We've looked in Psalm 139 this morning. Let's take a look at verse 13. For thou hast possessed my reins, thou hast covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works, and that my soul knoweth right well. My substance was not hid from thee when I was made in secret, and curiously wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Thine eyes did see my substance, yet being imperfect, and in thy book all my members were written, when in continuance were fashioned, when as yet there was none of them. According to this view, the phrase just refers to the virgin birth, the fact that Christ was formed and then born from his mother's womb. In Psalm 139, of course, we see a reference to conception and pregnancy that takes place on earth. It's certainly not down in a cave or down in a mine or somewhere below the earth. A child is not formed in the depths of the earth. This is figurative language, I believe, saying that the child is formed in her mother, his mother's womb. Well, a second speculation on that phrase refers to the grave. A grave is typically six feet deep, and so it would be below the surface of the earth. And so uh, we would say that just refers to someone who is dead and put into the grave. Now turn in your hymnal, your hymnal for worship and celebration, to the very back of your hymnal. And the back there we have the affirmations of faith. And take a look at the Apostles' Creed. It's number 716, way in the back of your hymnal. 716, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and so forth. Now if you look in the middle of that second paragraph you'll see that uh, Christ suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into Hades. The third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven. Now, a lot of times when we're reciting the creed, we would say he descended into hell. But if we say, as printed in the book here, he descended into Hades... What does that mean? Hades is not really the word for the place of punishment. That would be Gehenna, hell, the place of punishment. But sometimes Hades is translated as hell. Hell could be translated as the grave. So we could say Christ descended into the grave. But if we take it to mean that, then when we're reciting the creed, we say he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried, and descended into the grave. That would be redundant to say he was buried and he descended into the grave. Must be something else. Here's the third explanation. Some folks believe that Christ descended into the netherworld, the place of the dead, and did certain things there. And that idea crept into the church over a period of about 500 years, beginning in 200 A.D., So one theory holds that Christ went down to a place that was kind of a staging area, Limbus Patrum, Limbo of the Fathers, and that's where Old Testament believers were held, and some other folks too. And that was um, 
close to hell, but it was not hell. The word limbo means border or edge. So it was on the edge of hell, but it's certainly not a place of punishment. And people in the Old Testament were there. Unbaptized babies were there, unbaptized dead, including Old Testament believers. And so Christ went down and gave a message to these people. Uh, One theory holds that when he went there, he brought a message of the gospel. We'll look at that. But there would be two problems with Limbus Infantium or Limbus Patrum. One problem is throughout the Bible, the Old Testament, New Testament, you get the idea that Old Testament believers went to be with God in heaven. A very familiar support of that, Psalm 23, 6, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And then I don't go somewhere else and wait, said the psalmist, but I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Now, the next one, Ecclesiastes, is much more specific. Ecclesiastes 12.7 Then shall the dust return to the earth as it was, and the Spirit shall return unto God who gave it. The previous verses describe a person's death. When they die, dust to dust, ashes to ashes, the Spirit of believers goes to be with God. That's my understanding. Luke 16.22 And it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. Now, our second observation on Limbus Patrum would be that believers before Christ's crucifixion are not spoken of as being in captivity, spoken of as being in Abraham's bosom or in paradise. It's interesting to note that on April the 18th, 2007, Pope Benedict rescinded the doctrine of limbo. Here's what he said. The concept of limbo was, quote, only a theological hypothesis and never a defined truth of faith. Well, that's progress. Maybe purgatory will go the same way as limbo someday. So we'll discount that theory. Then here's another. The theory that Christ, after his death, descended into hell to complete the conquest of the devil and his angels or at least to rehearse and reiterate what he had done in his defeat of them. Now, those who would hold that view would base that and some other ideas on 1 Peter 3, 18. Let's take a look at that. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. What in the world does that mean? Well, the idea given would be that after his death on the cross, Christ went and preached salvation to those people who had disobeyed God in the days of Noah. That would be about 120 years while Noah was building the ark. And none of those people listened to him, and it was only himself, his wife, and his three sons and their wives who were the only people on the ark. 
Now, I have a problem with that. Why would God select this exclusive group to get a second chance? Why not the sinners from Sodom and Gomorrah? Why not the idolatrous Israelites who turned away from God to worship golden calves at Dan and Beersheba under uh, Jeroboam in various times and maybe in the wilderness? Not all of those people were true believers. Why wouldn't they get a second chance? Why wouldn't Hitler or Stalin get a second chance? There is absolutely no scripture in the entire Bible that says anybody gets a second chance to repent after death. That's the reason the urgency of the gospel message in evangelism should be right there upon us. Because when you have died, that is the end of any opportunity that you would have. And of course, we see automobile accidents and all kinds of things that can bring about that moment. Well, Peter comments on this in Acts 10.34. Peter opened his mouth and said, Of a truth, I perceive God is no respecter of persons. But in every nation, he that feareth him and worketh righteousness is accepted with him. If there were going to be one group that got a second chance, then probably should be some others. But we don't see in the Bible that that's true. Now, there's a group called the probationists who would say not only those people, but everybody gets a second chance after death, then you know it was really real. And you certainly wouldn't be condemned to eternity in hell just because you didn't go to church, you didn't believe God. To them, an eternity in hell under God's judgment would be a diabolical concept. Just They just couldn't imagine such a thing as that. They might see God's love, but they don't see His justice in any form or fashion. If you're reading in the New Testament, you see that occasionally Christ was accused of performing his miracles according to the power of the devil, of Beelzebub or something. So the unbelievers always are confused about the way this thing works. But we don't have to be confused because we have the Scripture. And we can look in the Scripture, find out what's going on, and apply these things. Hebrews 9.27 is pretty clear. And as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this... The judgment. Scriptural authority never mentions any kind of second chance or redemption after death. Now, there's another twist to that theory, and that is that Christ was not given a second chance, but he just went down to proclaim his victory to all the prisoners there. I guess he would have said, hey, you guys should have listened to what I was preaching, and you didn't, or what Noah was preaching, and so forth. Just as in the days of Noah, people alive at the time of Peter's writing were facing judgment. We've got a parallel here. The very next chapter that Peter writes, 1 Peter 4, talks about judgment will begin in the church. How about that one? For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, What will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? 1 Peter 3, Peter's warning the people of a judgment. He tells them how to be saved from the judgment through Christ. In 2 Peter 3, he talks about the final judgment. And he draws a parallel with the ark and the flood that destroyed everything on earth at that time. 
The next time it'll be fire and the heavens will disappear with a roar and the earth will be destroyed by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. We're familiar with that. So it looks like Peter is giving them a warning about judgment in his writing, same way Paul does, just like Noah did in his day. So here's our explanation. I believe that the Spirit of Christ spoke through Noah to those people in that day before they died, when they had opportunity to repent, just as the Spirit of Christ speaks through Paul and through Peter and through someone who's preaching the message in our day. If it's the true message, the Spirit of Christ is speaking through that. Now we've got some help from that. The New American Standard Version reads, He went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison. So we see we can't support the Ephesians 4.9 by appealing to 1 Peter 3.19. It's just not there. There's no scriptural evidence that Christ ever preached to anybody in hell or that he went and liberated a bunch of people in captivity and took them back to heaven. There's nothing about Christ ultimately conquering the devil after the cross. He said it is finished when he was on the cross. That meant that his work of disarming the powers of the devil and the principalities and those who would apply those powers, the work was finished at the cross. There's no more work to be done in purgatory or Limbus Patrum or anywhere else. That work of redemption is finished. Praise the Lord. There's nothing that we can add to Christ's work of redemption. Not good works, none of that. Good works are a good thing. And if we are redeemed, we will be committed to good works. Colossians 2.13 And you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. That means he took care of the indictment of the law, these written uh, precepts that were against us. And he has taken it out of the way and nailed it to the cross. Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them. In it, it meaning his death, on the cross. The disarming of principalities and powers was a public thing. It took place right outside the city of Jerusalem. It was not down in some pit under the earth or in a cave somewhere. It was very much public, and all Jerusalem was there to see it. Now, in your Bibles in the pew there, the English Standard Version, it says, He descended into the lower regions, comma, the earth. There are some other translations that would support the idea that uh, we're presenting here. Colossians 1.20 And through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him, I say, were the things on earth or things in heaven. It was earth and heaven. Christ was in heaven He descended to earth, then he ascended back to heaven. As you look in the 20th century New Testament, it says he came down into the world beneath. Uh, J.B. Phillips' New Testament, that is, from the height of heaven to the depth of the world. This is a pretty good one. 
the New English Bible to the lowest level down to the very earth, uh, there would be three different translations. I'm not advocating these translations. I'm just saying that some men have made allowance for what I believe would be the true depiction of what Christ is doing. So much for translations. What does the Bible say? Jesus is talking one evening to Nicodemus. And he's saying to Nicodemus, what, you don't understand these things? Well, you need to talk to somebody who has seen them. We have been there and we have seen these things. I suppose he's referring to the Trinity and the we, but Christ had been in heaven. And he can come down and tell Nicodemus about these things because he's seen them himself. He's been there. No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven. That is the Son of Man who is in heaven. Verse 11 says, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen. And then John 8, 23, Christ is talking to a crowd. He says to them, you are from beneath, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. Now, he's not saying that they're down from somewhere under the ground like a bunch of hobbits. He's just saying that they are from the earth. He's from heaven, they are from the earth. The contrast seems to be between heaven above and earth beneath. And I believe that's what he's talking about in the lower parts of the earth. He's just talking about the earth. Acts 2.19, I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath. Blood, fire, smoke, a lot of things coming here. So Ephesians 4.10, he who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Far above all heavens is figurative language for heaven. Nothing is far above all heavens. When you get to heaven, that's it. You don't, there's not a trap door that leads up somewhere else. This is just figurative language that Paul is using here. So what about the Apostles' Creed? He descended into hell. What are we going to say? When you're reciting the Apostles' Creed, and I recite the Apostles' Creed, what are you thinking when you say that? He descended into hell. Do you see him preaching to a bunch of people down in hell? I don't think that would be the correct thing. You could say he suffered the pangs of hell for us on the cross. Or you could just switch to the Nicene Creed, which doesn't have that phrase in there. That phrase crept in and some people have tried to eliminate it, but they're reluctant to change the ancient creed. It looks like we're compromising But you might go for the Nicene Creed. That's the one in our church position papers. It doesn't say anything about descending into hell or Hades or any of that. That's number 717 in the back of your hymnal. And we have used it at some times in our worship services. Well, let's close with a proclamation from the Apostle Paul that kind of sums up what we've been saying. Christ, the great victor, leading a procession, And in that procession, the captives, the devil, principalities and powers, death, sin, all of those things that the devil used against us now have been immobilized. Now, we can call the devil and he will come and we can quench the spirit. Obviously, that's so. But we have the power to resist the devil. We have the power to do business with the spirit and live a life that the devil can't touch unless, in a sense, we give him a foothold. We give him an opening, and he will certainly take it. I'm not suggesting we're going to be perfect by any means, 
But no temptation has taken us, but such as is common to all men. But with the temptation, God will provide a way of escape that we may be able to bear. Well, now here's the passage. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 54 through 57. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O grave, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin. The strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ is the one who gave up his home in heaven, gave up his standing there, his glory. He came down here. He redeemed the church. He became her head. He became the great giver and dispenser of all these gifts. And he fills all things. What does that mean? He fills all things. He fills all things by his grace, by his presence, by his sovereignty, and by his influence. Now just think about that last one for a minute. Think about the entire world, other nations, this nation. Think about the influence of Christ. Now, there are some other religious leaders who have had influence, but what kind of influence has it turned out to be? People are in bondage. And sometimes they even glorify death because they don't understand that death is a result of sin. Well, we don't have time to get into that. Christ directs and rules all things by His wisdom and His power. He directs and rules all things. He fills all things. We should really be rejoicing when we see these words and what it means. He wants to rule your life. He wants to fill you with an enthusiasm that just is overflowing. It spills out on other people. In fact, it spreads everywhere the fragrance of the knowledge of Him. Now, if you really don't have that enthusiasm, this afternoon, or if you really don't know Him, then join me as I pray. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come into Your presence with reverence and humility, but You have invited us to come boldly to Your throne of grace to find mercy and grace to help in time of need. Lord, this is our time of need in many ways. It's certainly our time of need in this country, and it's our time of need in the church, the church in general, in this church. Lord, it may be that it's the time of need for someone under the sound of my voice this afternoon. We acknowledge, Lord, that we are sinners, and we are in need of a Savior. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have come to this earth as one of us, and you have conquered sin and death, and you give us the power to resist the principalities and the dark forces of evil, and we rejoice in that. But we want to be clay in the potter's hand. We want to be molded by your divine providence and made into the people that you want us to be.
people who would spill over that sweet fragrance of Christ everywhere we go. Not only by the way we conduct ourselves and our behavior, but by the words that we say. Lord, we ask you to fill us with your spirit, forgive us of our sin, take control of our lives and make us the kind of people that you want us to be. Lord, help us to take spiritual inventory of our hearts as we come now to the time of celebrating and remembering what you have done for us when you purchased this great victory. And we pray these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.